Open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 1, and we will get to Hebrews chapter 2 before the end of the month. Bold claim, Pastor makes. What is the worst mistake that you ever made at work? Do you remember? Did it make a big impact on your life? Looking back at the different jobs that I have had, there's only one big mistake that I still remember to this day. When I used to work back on the farm when I was a a kid, we had to milk all the cows in a certain order. So I worked on a large farm. We had 1,400 head. We milked about 700 of those cows. And the cows were sorted into groups of like 80 to 100. I might have mentioned this before. Uh, we would milk the cows in the same order every, every milking. Otherwise, the cows wouldn't be ready if you just kind of randomly pick whatever you want to milk first. So it's good to, good to kind of keep that order. So we kept the cows in their groups, kind of shifting them back and forth between the milking parlor and their pens by a very complicated method of opening and closing gates. And on more than one occasion, I left a gate open that was supposed to be closed, which caused the cows from several groups to get mixed up. And this would cause a real headache. I was always embarrassed whenever it happened. And I think the most embarrassing thing was my dad was the herdsman on the farm, and so he had to go behind me and fix my mess. And that was embarrassing with the other milkers and such. That's what a mistake looks like on a farm. What does a pastoral mistake look like? I'm sure I've given you lots of examples over the last three and a half years of what pastoral mistakes look like. But one big mistake, one big pastoral mistake that left its mark on the church for the last 1,700 years was a mistake by a pastor named Arius. Arius was a pastor in Alexandria, Alexandria is a city in Egypt. And Arius did not understand how the one eternal God could actually become a human being. So he taught that Jesus was not God, at least not in the same sense that the Father is God. He said that God created Jesus as the first and the greatest of all creation. Jesus was kind of like a lesser God, a demigod, you might say not quite equal with the Father. It was in response to Arius that the Nicene Council was convened and the Nicene Creed, which we just sang, was developed. The Creed clearly opposed the heresy of Arius by proclaiming that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. The council then went on to declare, but those who say there was a time when he was not, and those who say he was not before he was made, And those who say he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance, or essence, 
or the Son of God is created, or the Son of God is changeable or alterable, they're covering all their bases, right? They are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Arius made a bad mistake. Whatever mistake you made in your jobs, in your past, I doubt very sincerely that your mistake rose to the level of a heresy condemned by the whole church. That would be a pretty bad mistake. I bring up this morning the heresy of Arius, the story of Arius, because he could have saved himself a lot of grief and a lot of heartache if he had paid closer attention to our text this morning in Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews actually wants to keep us from the mistake of imagining that somehow angels are better than Jesus. Last week we saw in verses 5 and 6 of Hebrews 1, we know Jesus is better than angels because Jesus, who is the Messiah, his position is that of the enthroned one, the one who receives worship. Angels, meanwhile, have the position of worshipers. They worship and Jesus is worshipped. Jesus is the Messiah, worshipped as God himself. But in our text this morning, we will see that Jesus is better than the angels because his identity, his nature, is not just that of a human Messiah, a human descendant of David. He is that, but he is also God. And Jesus' identity, Jesus' nature as God himself is far better than the identity of the angels. And because this is our Jesus, because we behold this Jesus, we have a message to declare to the world. We have a message to declare to our friends and our neighbors. Maybe some who, like Arius, have made the terrible mistake of imagining that Jesus is not God of very God. Perhaps neighbors who think that Jesus is simply a good man and a good prophet. Let's consider this text together. Hebrews chapter 1. The text says in verses 7 through 12, follow along as I read. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated in, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Now, this section is a little long, but we'll see here how it all works together. There's one quote that talks about the angels, and then there are two Old Testament texts that talk about Jesus. This is a contrast between angels and the Son. On the one hand, God says this about the angels. On the other hand, God says this about the Son. And the author of Hebrews 
as he's been doing all along, he's not actually making any of his own argument. He's not, he's, we don't see the words of the author of Hebrews here. This is all simply bringing Old Testament texts into conversation with one another, forcing us to reckon with the testimony of Scripture itself. So the author of Hebrews begins by quoting Psalm 104. Psalm 104, as we heard this morning in our call to worship, Psalm 104 is a song that is calling us to worship God and sing praises to his name. We are supposed to worship and adore our God. God is great. He is exalted over all things. He is the creator of all things. He is clothed in splendor and majesty. And as a proof of the splendor and the majesty of God, as evidence of the greatness of God, the psalmist declares this. He lays the beams of his chambers on the water. He makes clouds his chariots. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flame of fire. The picture is as if God was riding on the clouds and on the wind like a chariot coming down to rescue his people. That's the picture that's supposed to come into your mind when you read those words of Psalm 104. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Consider how amazing the angels are. Angels are so great. Angels are so majestic that almost every time a human being comes into contact with an angel, he ends up flat on his face paying homage to the angel. Seems like we're constantly reading in Scripture where the angels are telling the prophets, get up, stop worshiping me, I'm just a creation like you are. But the angels are so great that this is our natural impulse. We fall on our faces before them. That's pretty great, isn't it? That is pretty magnificent. It would be really cool to be that kinds of powerful, wouldn't it? And yet, God made the angels. And God made the angels as winds, as flaming fires. Yes, they're powerful. Yes, they are terrifying. But you know what? They're also transient. Have you ever tried to catch the wind? We've had a lot of windstorms over the last few weeks. We have a few less branches on our trees because of it. Have you ever tried to catch some of that wind and hold on to it? Grab it in your arms, and then you take it inside and you release it and whoosh, it goes blowing, right? It doesn't work like that. Have you ever tried to put a flame inside of a bowl? It's here, and then it's gone. It comes and it goes. It's elusive. It's almost as though the wind and the fire are not quite physical. They're here and they're gone. For all their power, they're transient. And the same is true for angels. The angels of God are transient beings, here and gone. As powerful as they are, you can't catch an angel. They may be powerful, but God can send his angels here and there, wherever he pleases, whenever he pleases, and they go, and they go quickly. They are not immovable gods, somehow fixtures of this earth. They are transient. Not only are the angels of God terrifying and transient, they're also temporary. One minute, the wind may be blowing 15, 20 miles an hour, and the next minute, 
in western New York, all is calm. One minute a branch may be on fire, and the next minute it's just a smoldering stick. The fire is gone. And so it is for the angels. If God binds an angel, the angel is bound. It is temporary. Its power and its authority are only as effective as God says it is. But notice in Psalm 104, as the author of Hebrews quotes it, Psalm 104 in verses 3 and 4, the author of, Hebrew, or the, the author of the psalm says twice that he makes, he makes the cloud his chariot. He makes his messengers winds. This is perhaps the most important observation that the author of Hebrews wants to make in this text. The angels were made. They are created. God creates angels. Angels are not sovereign over their own lives. God is sovereign over the lives of the angels. What's the picture from Psalm 104 that we're supposed to get of the angels? Angels are mighty. Angels are strong. Angels are powerful. And yet angels are servants. They are fleeting. They are transitory. They are created beings. On the other hand, what about Jesus? What does God say in Old Testament Scripture about Jesus? Well, the author of Hebrews begins by quoting from Psalm 45, uh, verses, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, are a citation of Psalm, uh, Psalm 45. Let me read to you the beginning of Psalm 45. Psalm 45, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. That song is written to the king, the king of Israel. The king, it says, is the most handsome of the sons of men. Yes, this song is really in the Bible. It's a song that's written about the Messiah. It's a song that is looking forward to great David's greater son. It's a song that takes all of the good things about David, cranks them up to 11, and then describes the perfect, ideal, promised son of David. And so the psalmist is writing about a future person. He's writing about a future coming human king, the perfect son of David. And now, listen, after I flip back there, to Psalm 45 and verses 6 to 7. These are the verses that the author of Hebrews quotes. You have loved uh, your, I'm sorry, verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And so the psalmist describes this future human son, this future descendant of David, this future Messiah king as, O God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
And we know the psalmist isn't just like switching focus, like one minute he's talking to the Messiah King, and the next minute he's looking up and talking to God. His, his focus is always on this Messiah King, because he goes on to say, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. By the way, that word anointed, that's where we get our word Messiah. This God, the one God, has anointed you, the Messiah, the human God. Now what is going on here? Why on earth would Korah address this future Messiah person as God when he's not talking to God? Now, I don't think that what's going on is Korah somehow prophesying about the incarnation. Some people have read the psalm that way, but I don't think the incarnation, I don't think that the the truth of, of literally God becoming man was something that was clearly revealed like that in the Old Testament. I think there's something else going on here. The king is being addressed as God because God himself is so closely identified with this king. This, the, the king is so closely representing God Almighty that the psalmist addresses him as God. Let me, let me give you another example of something like this happening in the Bible. In Exodus chapters 3 and 4, God meets Moses at the burning bush. You remember that? The bush is on fire and it's not consumed God commissions Moses to go to Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, you know what he says, let my people go. Moses complains that he can't speak well. You remember that? Full of excuses. Moses begs God to send someone else. So listen to what God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Then the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses. But he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. Now listen. He shall speak for you to the people He shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And taking your hand as staff, which you do the sign. So Moses is as God to Aaron, and then Aaron is as though the prophet to Pharaoh. The message of Moses is so closely aligned with God himself that Moses is as God to Aaron And Aaron is his prophet. This is the same kind of thing that we have going on here in Psalm 45. The authority or the throne of the king is so closely tied to the authority of God Almighty that the psalmist is honoring this king by calling him God. Now, having said that, consider the kind of authority that the Messiah is said to have. The text says, Psalm 45 says, the authority of this Messiah is forever and ever. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The authority of the Messiah will never end. That's exactly what God promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Notice, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. If the throne represents the authority of God and the authority of the king, then the scepter represents the actions 
of the king, his judgments, his conduct, the way that he rules. The way that the Messiah king rules is with absolute uprightness and justice. Notice, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Verse 9. The Messiah king is in no way corrupted by sin. He doesn't just do righteousness. The text says that he loves righteousness. His very affections are oriented by God himself. That is the Messiah king, this son of David. He is the ideal king. Have you ever been accused of being an idealist? Gals, when you first started to notice boys a couple years ago, perhaps even before you started noticing boys, but you were imagining your wedding day, and you're imagining just this perfect ideal day, this perfect ideal guy, the knight in shining armor. Guys, you were imagining the perfect gal, smart, insightful, deferential, a good cook, etc., 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 I was always an idealist. I was always, people accused me all the time of being an idealist. That's why I married Emily. The psalmist here is being an idealist. But you know what? Our ideal person, your ideal man, your ideal woman doesn't exist. But the psalmist's ideal king, he exists. He has been promised since the beginning of Scripture. The psalmist knew this ideal king exists because God has been promising since time immemorial that this promised king would come. And so the psalmist is looking forward to the ideal king, the king no less perfect than God himself. And in fact, the psalmist even calls him God. And the author of Hebrews picks up on all this. The author of Hebrews sees in Psalm 45 the ideal king, the ideal Messiah, the ideal son of David whose throne is forever and ever. And of course, the author of Hebrews knows the name of the Messiah. The psalmist who wrote Psalm 45, the sons of Korah, they didn't know the name of the Messiah when they wrote about him. But the author of Hebrews knows his name. The author of Hebrews knows, and so the author of Hebrews tells you and me, the Messiah, the Messiah who the psalmist was talking about, the psalmist who the, who the, the Messiah who the psalmist was waiting for and writing about, this ideal king, yeah, his name is Jesus. Then, having established that, the author of Hebrews seems to be, make a big, gigantic leap when he connects Psalm 45 with Psalm 102. Notice in verse number 10, the author of Hebrews stops quoting from Psalm 45 and he switches to Psalm 102. Listen to the first verse of Psalm 102. Psalm 102.1, hear my prayer, O Yahweh, let my cry come to you. Psalm 102 is not directed to the future Messiah. Instead, it's directed to Yahweh God Almighty. The whole of Psalm 102 is a prayer that Yahweh God would listen to the prayer of his suffering servant in his time of need. 
the hope of the suffering servant of Yahweh is exactly that Yahweh is eternal. That's why the psalmist says in verses 25 to 27, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. The psalmist is basing his hope on the eternality of God. That's the point of Psalm 102. And yet the author of Hebrews sees this description of the eternal throne of Yahweh, verse number 12. Look, uh, if you're in Psalm 102, up in verse number 12. But you, O Yahweh, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. And then uh, verse number 25, of old, you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. The author of Hebrews sees this description of the eternal throne of Yahweh. And the author of Hebrews says, now hold on a second. How many eternal thrones are there? Now let me ask you, how many eternal thrones are there? You know what I think of when I think of that question? As soon as those words popped in my mind, my mind goes immediately to what we call the Athanasian Creed. This was an ancient creed that was written one or two hundred years after the Nicene Creed that we were singing earlier this morning. And the part of the Athanasian Creed that I think of, that I remember, is when it says this, the Father is eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Spirit almighty. And yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one. You hear that? The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, and the Spirit is eternal. Yet there are not three eternals. There is one eternal God. So let me ask again, how many eternal thrones are there? One. This is the connection that the author of Hebrews is making. He's making the point of the Athanasian Creed 400 years before the Creed was written. Maybe the Creed came from Scripture. The author of Hebrews read Psalm 45, and he knows that no one less than God himself in human form could fulfill the promise of Psalm 45 of a king whose throne is forever. But for the psalmist, it's kind of like a riddle. The psalmist knew that he was waiting for a human king, a son of David, an actual biological descendant of David who would sit on David's throne. But he also knows that this king is going to be the perfect king, the ideal king. He doesn't necessarily know that the king is going to be God himself in human form, but I'm sure he also has no clue how anyone less than God could actually be this ideal and this perfect. It's a riddle for him. And yet, the riddle has been solved. 
Yahweh God, the eternal, all-powerful God, actually became a man. He actually took on flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so this is the connection that the author of Hebrews wants you to make. He's bringing these two texts into conversation with each other to show you from Psalm 102, a psalm which is adoring Yahweh himself, Yahweh God Almighty, for being the eternal God and the creator of all things. The author of Hebrews is showing us that there is only one Almighty. There is only one Creator. There is only one Eternal. And so, if Yahweh God is eternal and almighty, and the Messiah promised in Psalm 45 is eternal and almighty, then Jesus of Nazareth must be Yahweh God. Which means everything we say about Yahweh God, we say about Jesus of Nazareth. And this is category blowing. This is astounding. This is unexpected. We never would have solved the riddle this way. We never would have solved the riddle on our own. And Arius was trying to solve this riddle on his own. This is why he made such a deep, profound mistake that is rightly labeled a heresy. It was condemned by the true church of Jesus Christ. This is precisely why the true Christian church refuses to recognize the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons as Christian. Both groups reject this very teaching of the author of Hebrews that Jesus is God in exactly the same way that the Father is God. Now, this doesn't mean that Jehovah's Witnesses are not nice people and nice, nice neighbors. It doesn't mean that Mormons aren't nice people and nice neighbors. What it means is that our nice neighbors who are Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and anything else, they need to hear the good news of the gospel. That the one eternal almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, took on human flesh for us and for our salvation, as the creed says, so that we might be saved. Now, you might be afraid that we've kind of wandered a long way from the text. After all, the author of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is better than angels, and I haven't mentioned angels in quite a few minutes. So let's put the pieces together. Angels are powerful. Angels are cool. Angels are mighty. Angels are amazing. Angels are terrifying, and yet angels are transitory. Angels are temporary. What's more, angels are created. But what about Jesus? Jesus is eternal. Jesus is almighty. Jesus reigns eternally. There is no end to the throne of Jesus. Not only that, but Jesus is the creator Of old you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. The author of Hebrews quotes the psalmist. That's Jesus. Jesus created the heavens. And the angels of heaven are created. The angels are temporary and they perish. But Jesus, the Messiah, who is God himself, you will remain we read in Hebrews 1.11. Do you see? Jesus is better than angels because Jesus created the angels. Jesus came before 
the angels. Jesus will endure even if the angels were to pass away. Jesus is better. That's the point. But you don't get there. You don't get to the point if you don't connect Jesus, the Messiah, with God Almighty himself. You don't get to Jesus being better than angels if Jesus is not actually Yahweh God himself. Jesus is the eternal God. Angels are a temporary created servant of God. Case closed. Brothers and sisters, how important is it to you this morning, this argument of the author of Hebrews? He is making an argument with, without making words himself, without actually making any points, just by bringing texts of Scripture into conversation with one another. The author of Hebrews is making an argument. He's arguing that Jesus is more than just the Davidic messianic king. He is that. But inasmuch as the throne of the messianic king is an eternal throne... And inasmuch as the throne of Yahweh God is an eternal throne, and inasmuch as there can only be one eternal throne, Jesus is Yahweh God. Therefore, Jesus is better than angels, inasmuch as the Creator is better than the creation. And so when you look to Jesus, you are looking to the eternal God who became man. Pastor, I know that. I've been believing that since the day I trusted in Jesus as my Savior. Good. We take this for granted, maybe a little bit, and yet we live in a world that doesn't take this for granted. This is a very hard thing to wrap your mind around. We grew up in the church. We who did grow up in the church, we grew up in the church, and so we take it for granted. But this is very, very strange. This is a very strange idea to a world that isn't thinking in Christian terms, that didn't grow up in the Christian church. This is a hard concept to wrap your mind around. This is why Arius made the mistake that he made. He wasn't trying to belittle Jesus. Arius was trying to safeguard the honor of God. But when he tried to safeguard the honor of God, he failed to take into consideration the glory of the incarnation. He didn't understand the answer to the riddle of the glorious Messiah whose throne is eternal, just like the throne of God. Now, this is also why groups like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses seem to flourish. On the one hand, they're offering a picture of God which is much more accessible. It makes a whole lot more sense. It's a lot easier to explain that version of God. It's a lot less mysterious. But the problem is that the picture doesn't fit the clear teaching of Scripture. It's a picture that cannot make sense of how Jesus is actually better, for instance, than the angels. And so the challenge of this text for you and me isn't just to make sure that we've got our eyes looking at the right Jesus. I trust that we are if we're here and we're believing in this Jesus. We must be looking at the true Jesus. We must be looking at the Jesus who is Almighty God and Messiah. We also need to know what our Mormons and our Jehovah's Witnesses believe. When your Mormon or your Jehovah's Witness neighbor comes knocking at your door to tell you about how to get to the celestial kingdom or how to experience eternal life, 
don't get distracted and bogged down in the nuances and the details of the crazy arguments and the crazy doctrines. Paul warns us very clearly in Colossians chapter 2. He says, Do not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In other words, don't get into debates about this doctrine or that doctrine. Go back to Jesus. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Who do they say that Jesus is? Yes, there are groups that teach that you can be saved, you will be saved by Jesus. But the Jesus they are teaching is not the same Jesus as revealed in Scripture. Their Jesus is not the eternal Yahweh God who took on human flesh. Their Jesus is not the eternal second person of the triune God. Their Jesus is not the real Jesus, even if he has the same name. So bring them back to the biblical Jesus. Show them the story of Jesus. Show them the glory of Jesus as revealed in Scripture. You don't have to know all of the arguments. You don't have to know all of the errors of these false teachings. You don't have to know all the other problems of these groups. This morning, if you see the glory of the eternal God in Jesus, if you see what the author of Hebrews wants to show you about this Jesus, then you can show this Jesus to your neighbors. We live in a world that is imagining Jesus, perhaps maybe not like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons do, but a Jesus who is a good person, a good, a good moral teacher and all the rest. They're godless people, but they believe that Jesus is a good person, and so maybe it'd be good to follow his, his teachings. They believe perhaps that all roads lead to God. And Jesus' is a good road that will lead you to God. Is this the Jesus that you are looking at? Can you show someone, a neighbor, a friend, who has imaginations of all roads leading to God and the Jesus road is as good as any other, can you show that person that Jesus is better? You can if you see him. If you see this Jesus as the author of Hebrews is describing you don't have to be a professional. You don't have to be trained in all the ins and outs of all the world's religions. You know you're Jesus. You're looking at him. Tell your neighbors and your friends the glorious Jesus who is revealed in Scripture. You can do this. There are plenty of people who see Jesus as just an ideal man. But if you are seeing a Jesus who is just an ideal man, can an ideal man really care for you? No. An ideal man is still a man. Ideal or not, he's still limited. It takes God become man to be able to care for you personally. Can you show that kind of a Jesus to a neighbor who thinks that Jesus is an ideal person? I think we can. Brothers and sisters, this Jesus is compelling. If you show them this Jesus, this Jesus, this gospel is compelling. It is beautiful. This Jesus is powerful. The glory of the gospel, the glory of the gospel of this Jesus can bring life to the most wayward life. 
the light of this Jesus can remove the darkness that is brought on by the deceit of false religions or just false idols. The light of the truth of Jesus can remove the blinders of self-righteousness and self-help. This Jesus, this Jesus alone can truly save. And he saves. If you see, he will save, he will save if your neighbor and your friend will see. And so call them, show them who this Jesus is. It's fascinating, our God knows us so well. He, he designed this story. He gave us this, this good news of the gospel. And not only did he give it to us in words, but he has also left us with ordinance. We're celebrating this morning. We're talking about seeing this Jesus. And it's not an accident that we're also gathered around this table. You see, this table is for us a visual demonstration of this very truth that the eternal God took on flesh. This table is, is a picture for our imaginations of the body of the eternal God which was broken for you. The blood of Jesus who is God which was poured out for you. Jesus did this for your salvation and for mine. And so we have this ordinance, this, this Lord's Supper before us to feed our imaginations, to fuel our minds. This Jesus that we are going to see through the ordinances is the Jesus that we share with our friends and our family. I'm going to ask the deacons to come and 